Hello, Spilling Chai listeners. How are you? It's been three very long months. I've missed you so much, but I am so excited to be back on the mic with season three of the show, coming to you live from Washington, D.C. You would think with the U.S. battling so many different kinds of pandemics, from race to poverty to COVID, that America's love affair with guns would be cooling off. However, the numbers paint a very different reality. Not only was 2020 one of the deadliest years for gun violence in America, but gun sales, right alongside domestic violence numbers, surged even as COVID ravaged America and the world. There's been a boom in gun sales as Americans armed themselves over worries of the rise of crime and protests over police brutality and the deadly Capitol riots of January 6, 2021. But one woman remains as determined as ever to change America's gun violence culture. I am talking about Shannon Watts, the founder of the nation's largest grassroots group fighting against gun violence, Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. With over 6 million supporters and chapter in every state, Moms Demand Action and its partner, Every Town for Gun Safety, have stopped the NRA's priority legislation in state houses more than 90% of the time and passed hundreds of gun safety laws across the country, changed corporate policies, and educated Americans about secure gun storage. Watts is also an active board member of Emerge America, one of the nation's leading organizations for recruiting and training women to run for office. Her book, Fight Like a Mother, How a Grassroots Movement Took on the Gun Lobby and Why Women Will Change the World was released in May of 2019 and she is our season three premiere guest. Hello and welcome to the show, Shannon. My first question to you is, you were a communications executive for Fortune 100 companies before transitioning to the role of a stay-at-home mom until the 2012 shootings at Sandy Hook, Sandy Hook School in Newton, uh, Connecticut. You started a Facebook group that eventually became the grassroots movement that today is Moms Demand Action, part of every town for gun safety, the largest gun violence prevention organization in the country with nearly 6 million supporters. What have you learned about organizing online? Oh, wow. You know, I have learned so much. Um, it's important to remember, you know, I, I knew nothing about organizing or even, frankly, the legislative process. When I started Moms Demand Action, I, I just wanted to act. I wanted to get off the sidelines. And I felt passionately about this issue because so many Americans are senselessly, preventively dying from gun violence in this country. And so, I just started a, a Facebook page that I thought was going to be an online conversation. It quickly became an offline movement. If you know anything about type A women, you uh-huh. know that there's no going backward, only forward. Yes. And that's what we did together. Um, and we have used social media all along the way uh, to organize. As I said, we started the Facebook page. We have invested in the most sophisticated technologies out there to give to not just our management and our leaders, but every single volunteer. And so by the time the pandemic started, you know, we did not miss a beat. We were able to continue doing this work in the way that we had always done it online as a component of that. 
certainly not being able to do the offline work, knocking doors, having meetings, holding rallies, that was an important tool to us. But we were also able to use the tools that we had online to continue to be effective. And what I think we have learned because of this pandemic is these online tools, social media, text-to-call apps, all of those sophisticated technologies, they really enable us to be even more equitable and more inclusive. You know, here in California, where I live, when the pandemic started, we were about to have an advocacy day. And it's we have one in every state every year. And it's where we get together, you know, some people call it a lobby day. And we show up at a state house and, and we advocate for our issue. Mm-hmm. Those were always in person. Mm-hmm. And in California, we quickly had to scramble and make that online when the stay-at-home orders were issued. And we actually had more people participate online than we would have had in person. And that's because someone in San Diego can't necessarily afford or take the time to get to Sacramento, but they can zoom in during a break in their day. And so I don't think we'll go back to doing things just the way we did in the past. This will be an important component of all the work we do going forward. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's so true. The Sandy Hook shooting in many ways changed the trajectory of your life. Talk to me about why this particular incident moved you to, to action, because there are, there are no shortages, obviously, of shooting incidents in America. Why, what was particular about the Sandy Hook shooting for you? I would say that the, the Sandy Hook school shooting tragedy was really the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I had watched shooting tragedy after shooting tragedy occurred in this country yes. without any action from lawmakers. And I just really was never able to have the bandwidth to get off the sidelines. You know, I had three children under the age of five when the Columbine tragedy happened. I was a busy working mom. I I think for me, what was really unimaginable was that when Gabby Giffords was shot, a congresswoman, her colleagues did absolutely nothing Nothing. in response. Nothing. Nothing. And so I knew as most Americans did, you know, when 20 children and six educators were killed in the sanctity of an American elementary school, that, that didn't mean that they would act. Yeah. Now I should say now that, that, you know, I am, I'm a white mom and I lived in the suburbs and, and Sandy Hook school shooting made me afraid that my children weren't safe in their schools. I had five kids, uh, eight ranging from elementary all the way to college at the time. But 100 Americans are shot and killed in this country every single day. Mass shootings are about 1% of the violence in this country, the gun violence. Wow. We have to address all of it, right? Whether it's gun suicide, gun homicide, gun violence in rural communities, gun violence in city centers, domestic gun violence, unintentional shootings. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't realize that the violence I was seeing on the news was just the tip of the iceberg. Wow. Yes. Truly the tip of the iceberg. How many shootings even in Chicago that are happening all the time that never make the news? When I first came to America, so I'm from Bangladesh. That's where I was born and raised. When I came to America two decades ago, I always looked at the NRA as untouchable, like so Mm -hmm. powerful. But now it is bankrupt (laughs) and viewed in many ways as a pariah organization. How would you describe the state of the NRA today? Because you and your organization had a big role that you played in this, right? Yeah. You know, if you go back to 2010 and, and our organization started in 2012, 
In 2010, about a quarter of all Democrats in Congress had an A rating from the NRA. Wow. Today, none do. And it just goes to show you that sometimes activism is like drips on a rock. Yes, I wish it could happen overnight. I wish there could be a revolution and we would address gun violence wholesale through Congress. But that is not the way the system is set up, unfortunately. The way that the activism works in this country is that you have to have dogged determination. You have to show up at every gun bill hearing. You have to have rallies and marches. You have to meet with your lawmakers. You have to thank them when they do the right thing and shame them when they do the wrong thing. You have to run for office yourself. There's so many different ways to work on this issue culturally, electorally, legislatively. And we have been doing that for, again, almost a decade. And now we have seen the the fruits of our labor in that we were able to flip the House in Congress in 2018. We were able to flip both chambers of the General Assembly in Virginia in 2019. We won the presidency and the Senate in, in 2020 and 2021. And now we're, we're passing good laws. We're stopping bad laws. It is a buildup of the work that is done every single legislative session with every single company inside every single state house. And that is how ultimately you affect change in this country. And that goes for the NRA too. You know, the NRA was the most powerful, most wealthy special interest that ever existed. And now they're morally, ethically bankrupt (laughs) and they don't have the same power that they used to. And I believe that will even be further dismantled in the, in the coming months and years. Yeah. Oh, I hope so. Touch wood. I'm hopeful too. Are you proud of yourself for that? Do you ever go to sleep at night thinking, yeah, (laughs) I got to the NRA. I mean, that's, that's a pretty badass thing to have on your resume. Do you feel proud? I mean, look, I I hope it is in my obituary that, um, you know, I was on the NRA's enemies list, but this is about the work of so many volunteers, gun violence survivors, everyday Americans who decided that, you know, their children's safety, their community safety was worth spending their very valuable free time on, right? I'm a full-time volunteer and, and so many others like me wake up every day and commit to fighting the gun lobby to fighting their agenda, which is guns for anyone, anywhere, anytime, no questions asked. And and that to me is heroic. And we never would have come this far if they hadn't joined our ranks. Wow. And so many mothers and so many women too, right? I really think women are the secret sauce to organizing. You know, black and brown women have been working on this issue tirelessly for decades without much attention at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I do think it, it has been mass shootings that have gotten white women like me off the sidelines. You know, shame on us for not getting involved earlier, but but we're here. And and it really is on white women to shoulder the burden of much of this work because you know, black and brown communities are disproportionately impacted. And we have to use the levers of power that are available to women in this country. We're only about 5% of Fortune 1000 CEOs. We're only about 30% of all the lawmakers in this country. And as the saying goes, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. Yes. And and we are over and over and over again. Over. You know, it's it's 
it's why the Violence Against Women Act hasn't been reauthorized because men are are making the laws. Um, and so the power, the, the levers of power we have available to us are our voices showing up and our votes. We're the, the majority of the voting public in this country. So those are the levers of power we're pulling until there's equity and parity in positions of power. Yes, oh, that's so important. So many people assume that the COVID pandemic has been good for gun violence because we hear about mass shootings and school shootings, you know, so much less. I feel like there was a period where there was one like every three and a half, four weeks almost. But in reality, things are just as bad, or many would argue worse, especially, you know, when it's considered to uh, domestic violence, as you were mentioning earlier, suicide. Talk to me about what you are seeing with gun violence and COVID. COVID is truly exacerbating the gun violence crisis in this country, in part because tens of millions of guns have been sold in the last year. The gun lobby has used chaos and fear to juice gun sales. You know, there were 43% more background checks processed between March and November, 2020, compared to the same time period in 2019. Sorry to interrupt you. And then gun shops were deemed as essential businesses, right? Initially they were closed, but then they were labeled as essential businesses. What was that about? What was the government thinking doing that? Well, I mean, there's a reason the NRA gave $30 million to Donald Trump's election campaign. Uh, They expected you know, a return on their investment. And that was when COVID hit, Donald Trump encouraged gun dealers to be considered essential businesses. The ATF okayed curbside gun sales. And then we have something called the Charleston loophole, which means that a licensed gun dealer can proceed with a gun sale after three days, even if a background check hasn't cleared. And it's called the Charleston loophole because it's how the gunman who shot nine black worshipers in Charleston, Charleston. Uh, was able to get a gun. His background check hadn't cleared. He was a prohibited purchaser. They sold it to him anyway. And you know, hundreds of thousands of guns may have slipped through that loophole in the last year, which means people who sh- shouldn't have guns now have them. And so we are in an incredibly dangerous situation. We know that gun suicide has increased. We expect an additional five to 7,000 gun suicides because of the COVID crisis. We know that city gun violence is really exploding. I mean, it's just, 2020 was one of the deadliest years in recent history for cities. We know domestic gun violence is increasing. You know, calls to hotlines are increasing and, you know, domestic abusers may have easy access to guns now. So these are problems that that can be remedied through legislative fixes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we are very heartened to see that that Congress is already introducing bills that would address some of these crises. Yes. Oh, gosh. I know because gun sales and domestic violence sales are completely parallel. They were surging almost simultaneously. The pandemic has exposed so many parallel pandemics in America, especially when it comes to racial justice. You said that police violence is gun violence. Many Americans would find that statement quite controversial. Tell me why you think that. Well, more people are killed by police in this country, particularly black and brown people, than, than by mass shootings. Yeah. And, you know, this has been a, a crisis in this country for a long time. We saw it 
this summer in particular, after you know George Floyd was murdered, not by gun violence, but then there were so many incidents of police gun violence after that. And again, we saw a real appetite among lawmakers and state houses this summer to finally act to do things legislatively like require body cameras and prohibit chokeholds. And we have gone into states, our volunteers have, to support the passage of those bills. Uh, It started in Colorado, where Representative Leslie Harrod was able to pass police reform legislation there, and, and it's followed in so many other states across the country. So that is certainly a part of our work, and and it continues with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that just passed the House, too. Fantastic. Okay, my last question is, your work is such hard work, especially emotionally taxing. What motivates you to do the work that you do? And are you hopeful about gun reform, gun control reform in America? I am motivated because we are winning. And I know that will sound strange to some people who are listening, but just because we haven't had the cathartic moment in Congress that everyone is waiting for, and I believe that it's coming, Mm -hmm. we are winning in the states. We have passed background checks now in 22 states. We have passed red flag laws, which allow guns to be temporarily removed from someone who's a risk to themselves or others in 19 states. We've disarmed domestic abusers in 29 states. We have closed the Charleston loophole that I was talking about earlier in 19 states. And then we have a 90% track record of stopping the NRA's bad agenda. 90% of their bills were able to, to stop. And that's in for five years, the last five years in state houses all across the country. So I'm feeling very heartened about the difference that we're making culturally, legislatively, electorally. You know, we had a hundred of our own volunteers and gun violence survivors run for office in 2020, 43 won. Two of our volunteers are now Congresswomen. So this is, again, something that is going to take time. It's going to take several legislative cycles to get to where we need to be, but it is happening. Wow. Shannon, fantastic. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to talk to you. Yes. And you know, know, when you started following me on Twitter, I was like, I have made it. Oh my gosh. Well, we, you know, we were all excited when you reached out and so thrilled to be on. Oh, fantastic. You are our season three premiere guest. So it's going to be wonderful. Up. Thank you, Shannon. Have a good one. I'll Thank you. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. COVID has shown us so much suffering and so much death. Many people are hitting what has been dubbed the pandemic wall. Others are exhausted from waiting for things to get back to normal. But many of us have accepted that we need to embrace the new different. And I am one of those people. Despite all the doom and gloom, I am optimistic that the pandemic is giving us an opportunity to remedy and heal toxic and violent ways of the past. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and all major streaming apps. Don't forget to follow us on social. And until next time, let's keep brewing the chai.